So my day job is to help financial institutions minimize their impact and have a positive impact on the planet and society. And the reason I like doing it for financial services is because that's where the money is, that's where the power is. You're listening to Fondue FM, an anthology of voices from in and out of design. This episode is a conversation with Ottilie Mould, an ESG climate consultant in financial services based in London. Tilly tells me a bit about what it is her job as a consultant entails, how she got there, and why it's relevant to her passion for environmentally conscious business management. This talk is the first of many to come that introduce professionals from across disciplines, and that's in the hopes of expanding our understanding of sustainability and the varied means of addressing it. Enjoy. Okay, so, Tilly Mould. Ottilie Mould. Ottilie. No, no, Tilly. Two T's. I typed in with one T the other day on LinkedIn to try and, like, well, see what you've been up to with your life. <laughs> and I couldn't find you. It did not recognize. It didn't even suggest. Okay, but Ot- Ottilie Mould. No, Tilly. Um, you're now a climate... What are you? Tell me what you do. <laughs> I am a... What's your title? Climate change and ESG consultant in financial services. Ugh. I know, it's mouthy. On the one hand, interesting. On the other, uh, Yeah. I, I think know. it's too long. Cut the second half. Why? Which what's the second half? Well, the second half was in financial services. <laughs> uh, that's the yawn. No, I'm joking. Sounds interesting. I love Okay, money. so we want to we go through how you... Well, we want to get to how you got here. So, you go to high school in England. Uh, yes. And... Was that a fun experience? Uh, I had a great time at school, actually, I have to say. I Which was, kid were you? I was um, Jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> no, I was friends with most people. Um, I wasn't very, wasn't like Miss Popular, but I wasn't on the loser table. Um, every every school has one. Uh, I wasn't that clever. I was average at everything. I'm very dyslexic, so I think that probably held me back a lot. Um, wasn't great at sport. When did you find out you were dyslexic? When I was about 12, 13. That's the dyslexia talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a bad joke. There's something else. Cut that out. Uh, No, quite. quite, Was Was it useful for you to find out? And how do they test you? You have to do a three-hour like test, which is actually really counterintuitive for a dyslexia who has trouble concentrating. But anyway, (laughs) um, you basically do... As like visual, like spatial recognition, reading, spelling, numbers, and they test sort of where you are above and below average of the nation. And I don't know how they do it, but they just come out saying you're really dyslexic, you're quite dyslexic, you're not dyslexic. I was really dyslexic. Really? Yeah. I find that quite surprising. Yeah. I think it's a strength personally, but it definitely is because you know, you end up sort of building a support system to compensate to some degree. So it promotes a ton of personal growth. I disagree with that, actually. Get out. <laughs> I don't think, like maybe I'm just saying this because I am dyslexic, but I do not, I do not think being dyslexic is a problem, is a challenge that I had to overcome and overcompensate for. I genuinely think, it, being like, dyslexia is literally your brain being wired differently. And like 20% of the population is dyslexic. So it's not that we have anything, like it's not that we have a challenge or anything wrong with us. It's just the way the current education system is set up is that it is built for people not like us. Mm. And so my spelling, for example, that's how it manifests and my letters and spelling. I cannot spell bullshit. Your and your. God, it no, pisses me off. <laughs> you always bloody correct me. It's well, because I feel like you've been corrected. Like, did, did you not learn it? No, I can't do it. Like some words, like for example, the, the storm, the storm we just had in, in England. Heidi or something. No, it, it began with an E. I've been I've been told that name of that storm so many times. I can't get it in my head at mm. all. Like it's just I I generally I think it was Eunice or Eun, uh. Eunice. See Eunice. Like uh. I I can't get it into my head. Left and right can't do it. I mean I'm 25. If I've, you see it written down, it doesn't it doesn't lodge I, itself somewhere in your sort of. Uh, I mean visual. I can, I can figure it out. I've got I have a technique. I have a freckle on my left hand. It's freckle left. That's how I do it. For remembering Storm Eunice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, for knowing my left and right. Can't do that. So can, have you thought about what is that process? When, like, 
it's quite nice to go back to something we can all relate to, like left and right. Yeah. When you're trying to turn left or give someone directions, I point. Or verbalize, verbalize a geographical direction. Does your mind say to itself that way, which is, and then you're like, which is, I can't fucking remember. Let's run the algorithm, freckle left, left. That's it, left. Does that all happen in a split second? Or, no. or is it something much more subconscious that you block on and you're like, I, I, that, I don't know <laughs> it that way, that way. Yeah, I think I've, I've, well, if you said to me right now, like I know that that way's left because I just checked my hand, but. Well, it's left for one of us. <laughs> oh, very true. Oh God, that's like. All right, deep. Oh God. Um, no, but I, I just, it doesn't register in my mind. If someone says to me, turn right, I would have to stop and be like, which way's right? What are you hearing that when you hear right? That one. When you hear red. Red. You think red. Yeah. 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 So yeah. You, like. That's my point. So many words you learn through like the association with something. But it's right? not it's not like, the word that I have a problem with. It's associating it with the direction that I can't do. Hmm. I don't know what it, yeah, so, but also I've, I've- I find that incredibly interesting though. It's, it is Again, weird. People don't, people don't understand how- Because words without associations are just shells. Like it's very hard to remember them and without the associations. Yeah. So I only know the word right because I need something to describe that direction. So I use the word oh, to get there. Oh, interesting. And so the, the fact that you can't associate yeah. the two is, well, you can, but you know, it's something that but tricks trips you up every once in a while. It's probably also, I've re I've resounded myself to never knowing right, my right and left, so like, I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> Oftentimes you just accept it when someone pauses for a moment to think or fucks up on a, uh, a word that starts with the same letter as another one, so they're looking like emergent. Ah, oh, no, I mean, uh, something else mm -mm. and you don't have to explain it but you guys explain you guys explain yourselves <laughs> which is obviously a personality trait yeah but is that in some way that makes it more normal but it also maybe builds it up into and you know something something you can't get rid of yeah d definitely i think it's probably i've definitely probably i probably could f figure out i could train my brain to figure out left and right mm. i mean yeah but what I about numbers numbers i'm fine with what the fuck? You see, that's the numbers are so difficult to um, visualize in the way that, you know, left and right, for example, so I aren't. Think, I think they're easier to visualize because they're. Isn't dyslexia, I mean, spelling's one of the things, right? There, there are lots of different yeah, ways yeah, it yeah. can express itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. So with you, it was especially the spelling. Yeah, can't spell. I genuinely can't spell. But sentences, can you put, like, in school, say, when you were like 12 and you had this test? Could you could you sort of understand sentences quite clearly and write them yourself? Yeah, it wasn't. I think sen sentence structure I'm fine with. Grammar I'm okay with. Uh, I always the feedback I always got given at school was that she's great in class when you talk to her. Mm. When she writes an essay, nothing comes through. Like I'll read something back that I've written. If I leave it ten minutes, like it will invariably make no sense. <laughs> like I'm not good at writing stuff down. Mm. especially quickly i don't really buy it interesting what i think you might have failed the test you know down to some uh, unfortunate like circumstantial I've done two. okay i'm definitely dyslexic. well we need some more data points to really prove this okay no i i i don't entirely buy it i've met a lot of people and i'm thinking myself as well who w would trip up on much bigger things and haven't ever been uh listed as dyslexic but anyway so what what so you think I'm what you don't think you think well, think it's more about of my think about what your block. current job entails the ability to articulate with precision mm -hmm. verbally I very rarely have to write things down uh huh okay and so even if I do it I'm writing it down that's to read the big it out. distinction yeah like I'm not I I don't create wow so there's there's it? some kind of delayed or not malfunctioning, but uh, um, sort of. Choose your words carefully. I'm dyslexic too, apparently. No, there's some kind of disconnect between what's in your head, what you're about to say, and what you can just get your hand to write in words. Yeah. That sounds very sort of physical, more than intellectual, doesn't it? It's nothing to do with my intellect. I think actually, I think being dyslexic has actually made me smarter mm. because my brain is wide differently and i can see the bigger picture much easier than some people 
in a way, that's the point I was getting at a few minutes ago. Um, uh. Which I totally, I totally buy that. Whether or not it's because you've had to not, I know you don't like the word compensate, mm. but to some degree, to keep up with the system that you've been forced through, you've probably developed or you know trained muscles in other parts of your brain. Other people, everyone's dealing with something, but people without that particular challenge, or you don't like the word challenge. Yeah, yeah. no, I know it. Yeah, haven't had to train, so you sort of end up with this like huge tricep, and everyone's like, "How'd you get that?" You know, like, well, it's because I've. It's because I have no legs. <laughs> I have to carry myself around. You know? That doesn't work. Okay, so you get a test at 12. Yeah. Find out you're dyslexic. You're the kid in school who's adaptable, able to talk to most people, friendly enough, approachable enough. You get to the end of high school, you're applying to uni. What are your thoughts? I always knew I wanted to do something in business. As I didn't actually know. I think I always, and I know that's a really wide concept, but I knew I wanted to. I find businesses fascinating, always have. My favorite book growing up was Richard Branson's Autobiography, and I just find it incredible he could start up so many businesses mm. so quickly, whether they're successful failures. Very dyslexic man. Exactly, another one, yeah. No. So he's, he's, he's what you associated with business. Yeah, and my That's dad a very, yeah, as well. But those are cool figureheads, actually, because yeah. business is a word to me I associate with um, shitty logos and suits, <laughs> which is not particularly inspiring, and it's, and yeah. it's unfortunate. Because business, if you associate it with actual businessmen or businesswomen, business people, mm. you realize that it's it's really quite courageous, interesting, um, and highly ambitious individuals who are probably very good at bringing other people together, mm. which is an, like a heck of a human skill, right? Yeah. If you take away all money, all exchange, all trade, just the ability to like build a project and bring the right people into it and grow something is incredible. Mm. Yeah, it's and it is. You are building something that, and hopefully, you're building something that, that lives beyond your life. Does that it's matter? Like being an Does that matter? I don't necessarily think it needs to have any longevity whatsoever to be valuable. Interest. Okay, I think. See, for me, personally, it would, but I can see how. I think it depends what you value, and it depends on how you define success. And I think that's different to every person. But to me. If and when I ever start my own business, I would want it to be to run for a long time beyond me. I want it. I don't want me to be the business. It would be great. So that's that's a great that's a great um, sort of distinction to make because I think what you're implying by it lasting longer than you is actually about it being something that can survive without you. Yeah. Therefore, not you. Yeah. And that I that I agree with. I think what I'm questioning is just the requirement for it to have life that is longer than yours to continue a legacy beyond your physical lifetime as 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 a judgment of value yeah because i again personal but i don't i think an organization the 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 what the reason i find businesses so fascinating is that they are built by a collection of people or things but they you're creating something which is, which is entirely separate to each of those individuals as in it's not just a collective of people, it's its own living, breathing thing, which sets, which sits apart. And people can come and go and contribute to it and, and make it grow. But the purpose of that organization is separate to the people who made it. And heavily influenced, do not get me wrong. And I think you need that tension, you need that feed in and feed out. So it's building something that can have a life of its own. Yeah. It's, uh, no, but it's an interesting distinction because yeah. what... I mean, we use the word longevity, endurance, um, well, sustainability in some cases, but in this case, we're just talking about a life span that something can have. And a lot of people associate solidness and hardness, ability to, you know, live or stand for, for centuries as the criteria of judgment for whether or not it's good quality. Good quality lasts, bad quality doesn't. It's trying to shift the general perspective away from value in long lasting and actually value in just good, something that does a great amount of good and has intrinsic value right now. So to go back to what you're saying, if you started a business, you'd like it to last a lot longer, right? Mm -hmm. than, than you. Really, what I understood was that you saw the success of that company being that it could last a long time. Got it, I'm with you. And all I'm saying is that even if it lasted a year, you could start an unbelievable company and it could create huge value that actually was just a blip in time. 
Yeah. Think of think of bands. Some of the best bands, whose reputations do last forever, by the way, were only together for a short period of time, potentially. Spice Girls only made one album. But yeah, it's an interesting distinction to draw. Okay, so you're into business, mm-hmm. and you had the likes of Richard Branson and your dad, and presumably some other mentors. Any female mentors? No, I, no, I uh, didn't really, I wouldn't consider, I didn't even think I had mentors. I think, I didn't, again, I didn't really look up to. Well, I don't know what the c- correct word would be. Not exactly idols, but people that inspire you. That's kind of how yeah. I think of a mentor. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, I, no, I didn't, I didn't really. Role models. That's role, yeah, role models. I didn't really, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I've always had this, as in I would be, people when they were younger would daydream, like girls would daydream about you know, I don't want to stereotype, but getting married and having kids. I was always the person. <laughs> I don't want to stereotype, but I'm going to. <laughs> well, but... I mean, I'm speaking from my own yeah, personal experience. Yeah, yeah. But my but my dreams were always, I had this vision of myself walking in a suit with a briefcase and a Starbucks coffee into the office. That is what I used to love going Legally to my dad's brunette. office. Literally, I mean, pretty much. Maybe she was my idol. But I used to, when I used to um, stay at my dad's office or like, be there for the day that was the highlight of my day was going to get a hot chocolate because i was too young for coffee and walking in to the office and i would like pick out my smartest clothes and i that was my pure that was how i imagined success and my future to look like i didn't really think about what i was going to be doing but it's just that it looked busy it just yeah you look you feel important and you're part of something bigger maybe yeah too. you're kind of part of the yeah and i love doing that now i love walking into my office with my reusable coffee mug in my hand because I love the planet. And just like walking in and people knowing me and like asking me stuff and and just, I don't know, like, and I love the people I work with where they're all great people and we all have such a good time. And as that, that I just feel like I've kind of reached <laughs> what I've always dreamed of. I had quite low standards. Is that? Because it wasn't the money necessarily Dig that you were idolizing. I did. I've always known I've always wanted to be financially independent. Like I've never, in my mind, like I always do a bit of a mental projection of my income and what like investments and things, and I've never factored in sharing that with someone else or someone else contributing to that. It's always ever been like I know I'm going to be so I know and I know I want to have a good life and I know I picked a, a lucrative career path, but I've never been like I want to be stinking rich because mm. I don't. I think it's mm. awful. But I think it's more. I just I've always said my motto. Like I might have told you this before, but I've my dream, my definition of definition of success is that in like 20 years time when a friend of mine's having a dinner party and they invite me and they call up someone else and say, come along to this dinner. I'll put you next to Tilly. She's such a cool lady. She's done such like the coolest things. She's so interesting. You'll love her. That is what I want. That is my like definition of success. I want to be, and I hear, hear my, my parents, for example, talking about someone who like oh she's such she's she's had such a great career like she's so interesting mm, mm. I, I, I've had the same her. experience yeah I want to be that person that people want to meet I don't want to be famous but I want to be that person that's a great um great goal yeah it's kind of flexible it's enough. very open it's <laughs> yeah. very open yeah yeah because you could it's it's funny projecting that far down the line isn't it it's funny that you do because there's something quite sort of selfish in a way yeah. about it but maybe you're a goal-oriented person and every once in a while you run the simulation for where you might end up if you take certain routes and that helps you make the choices you do now mm. but i think that's that's a very um sincere goal very achievable yeah. because as you said the success that we're judging there is is a success to have lived life in a full way mm. not to have done it by any consumer standards mm. um it's not about the bling it's more about the sort of the scars it's more about, it's also reputation and it is selfish like i do want a great reputation i want to build a good name for myself like i want to be i want to be respected and i guess do you think you had these things anyway growing up i mean in your life up until this point what someone who i wanted to the respect uh, oh but me personally yes yeah yeah think i've had respect well yeah because you're saying you want to have these things and it sort of implies that you don't or that you haven't interesting this is what my life coach said to me last week (laughs) 
Well, as I've told you many times, you should stop paying for that shit and it's just talk to me. Free. It's something that Bringer offer another amazing perk. Um, I'm just plugging Bringer. Uh, we, I, I think respect is a weird one because I don't think I've done anything to earn anyone's real respect yet. Yeah. Like I'm 25. But I get the insinuation. Ad- admire, potentially. Again, like admiration. Too, too yeah. Much. I just don't think I've lived. Acknowledge. Yeah. Just to be acknowledged is, is nice, right? More than be seen, acknowledged is someone yeah. actually uh, show appreciation. Appreciate. How about that? Are you not going to ask me to feel like I was underappreciated in my childhood or something? <laughs> no, but if you want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm actually charging me. Um, no, I don't think it's... I, I guess people don't really... Because like, friends of yours aren't going to turn around and be like, look, you're doing a great job. Because that's just not what's done. Maybe it should. Maybe we should be more vocal about that with each other. But I, I think especially as a young female at work, we are all. And again, it's not just applying to actually not just applying to women. But imposter syndrome is massive. No one. I, I know there's a lot of the girls I work with. None of us felt like we should be there. We were like, what the fuck happened here? How the hell did we get here? Even though looking back on it. And having this conversation, I realized this has been my goal. Like, I've always wanted to do this, and I've put work in to get there. It's not something that feels like we deserve and, you know, that we deserve it over someone else. I think so. that might be generational. I hear that from a lot of my friends as well. And to some degree, I've, I've felt the same thing. Yeah. It's earning your right to be somewhere that you, in the past, would have only dreamt of. Yeah. So... It goes without saying that it would take a little bit of time to adjust and, you know, just through time spent doing it, realize that, yeah, I am really good at this. And I did follow the right direction for where my skills lie and other people seem to appreciate it and pay me well for it. So, you know, I deserve to be in this room. Yeah. But also think it helps to meet people that are terrible at what they do as well. Because then you're like, oh, right. I really deserve to be here. They don't. I'm not that shit. I should hang around you more often. What's that? Oh, you should. You should. But you know, that's that's part of the social service that a friendship group can offer. You've got to have somebody who doesn't who doesn't tell funny jokes and constantly uh, makes faux pas. Yeah. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) So why didn't you go to business school? Uh, It wasn't clever enough. I didn't do very well. I did like average in my exams. I only really got into Manchester University. It was my second choice. Um, I would never have got into business school. What did you study? Business management and French. So French was playing to a strength because you'd grown up in the south of France. Yeah. That's where we met. Yeah. And you're bilingual. Yeah. So by the standards of any English person, you were top of the class. Yeah, but also I was in my French university with lots of French people, which I think is cheating. That's odd, yeah. Yeah. That's odd. Yeah. Why are they doing that? Is that because for every Brit that joins that course, it'll be an incredible experience because they'll be surrounded by native French people. I think it was it's because or French you can, speakers. You can get into they would do like similar to me, French and business. They'd get into the So that's a joint degree. Yeah. Why do they do that? What join them Why up? do they join them up? Do they you know uh, see that there's a particular market for that or is it just to allow people to um, if they're not already trained in business enter into that degree with something they might already have a strength in a combination but you can do like Manchester's quite flexible we have they have a good business school there and so you can do business with pretty much anything hmm. but our degrees were tailored because we learned business French for example as well as normal French that's really we useful we didn't do any French literature god damn yeah. You could be you could be a really poor sort of everyday conversationalist in French, but if you have a lingo, yeah, that's related to whatever your day job is, yeah. Oh my God, you could excel. I can't remember. Reversely, if you have great spoken conversational conversational language, but you don't know any of the kind of the lexicon of 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 the industry you work in. Mm. For example, I never learned any of the architectural um, terminology, and to be honest. I make most of it up in English anyway. <laughs> but speaking French, I end up losing a couple of years off my uh, off my degree just with how overly simplified I have to make my descriptions because I know none of the words. But did you study it in French? No. No. Yeah. And that's my point. If you can yeah. pick, if you can pick up as you did business terminology, 
in French. Mm. It really primes you. It does. But again, it's not that hard. Like, and a lot of is, the French... Is most of it just English words? It's just the English words of uh, French accent. Okay. Yeah. No, actually, generally, it's like... Uh, but And also the words that you're taught at uni, and then you go work in a French... I worked in a French office for six months in Paris. They literally say, meeting. Right. Enfin, meeting. Yeah. Cool. No, but they don't actually use... Because, you, because a lot of the time you're working with English people or like your English counterparts. Uh-huh. So actually, it doesn't actually make a difference. How long is the degree? Four years. Oh, and you spent one in Paris, right? Yes, I did. Mm. Best year ever. Really? Best year? Well, yeah, I had a lovely time. I Still keen it. to go back, right? Yeah, 100%. Somewhere. Finally get that business uh, vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. Brush uh, off up all to of full those speed. fake words. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I really want to go back. It's the coolest city ever. It's nice and... Was there any point during your degree where you questioned whether this was the right course for you or what? what you would possibly do when the four years came to a close just um, because it does leave you with a lot of options right which can be incapacitating in a way it does it does leave you with a fair few options but actually it doesn't in a way because it's not like you probably can't go into banking or anything like that because you don't have economics or maths but then you're probably too overqualified for a job i can't think of an example but like that kind of has some kind of business so you're kind of in between <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, again, literally fell into my job by the, this internship I did in Paris. Um, I couldn't find an internship. Was that with the same company? No, different company. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Same industry. And my sister's best friend was a year above me at Durham, and he was doing this internship. And someone who need, needed to find someone to replace him. In London? In Paris. Okay, so this is getting abroad. that first internship in yeah, Paris. Yeah, and I got it completely through him, through luck. And it happened to be in management consultancy. Uh-huh. Uh, so I spent six months there, loved it, applied to every UK management consultancy I could think of to get an internship when I came back from Paris. I got rejected from every single one of them, apart from Beringa. Mm, um, bottom of the barrel. Literally bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and I wasn't going to, and I got this acceptance letter from Beringa, or like coming for an interview. Uh, I'd never heard of them. I wasn't even going to take it. I was just like, fine, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be a management consultant anymore. Every, and then every year, the Financial Times releases a um, like a rate of ranking on management consultancies, and Beringa was on the list, top of the list for energy. I was like, "That's really cool." Okay, fine, I'll go for the interview. Got the interview, got the internship, got the job. What do they ask in an interview like that? Because let's face it, you don't have any targeted expertise no. for a job like that. So, what are the criteria they're looking for? We've talked about what you learn once you're a consultant. Yeah. What do you? What are they looking for when you go in? It's a really weird interview process. So they don't believe in personal statements. Firstly, um, you they just ask you a set of questions. I can't remember what they are now, but something like, you know, what define a challenge to you, or like what? So quite kind of nebulous questions that you have to really think nebulous. about. Nebulous. That's my word of the uh, word of the moment. Nebulous. What does that mean? I mean, sort of like nondescript. Yeah, it kind of doesn't have a shape. Ah, great word. Yeah, it's, it's used in word. space. No? Nebula. A nebula. Oh, probably. I use it to describe ESG as concepts. Very nebulous. Oh, I see. Yeah. You've developed. Oh, yeah. You've been on synonyms. <laughs> right click. In a this. thesaurus. And you're like, <laughs> I think that's where you find synonyms. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. But no, you just right click. On what? Word document. You right click and there's an option. Oh, there's suggestions. I don't yeah, actually yeah. use Word. Oh, there's not. There's on most things about Outlook as well. I use I use, we, the we I use the text app on my computer because Word's not oh, free wow. and my my student license is expired. So I use text and I feel like a hacker when I do, when I use it. Yeah, it looks like you're writing code. This is a printout from text. I like that. I like the. Um, I like the aesthetic too. Yeah. <laughs> and the coffee stain. This will yeah, go in the archive. <laughs> have you not had a read of this already? I don't think I have. Oh, is that the one you sent me in WhatsApp? Huh? You put Bitcoin as the number one topic. No, they're actually out of order. And the reality is, when you lay out topics they're really they're not even cornerstones of a conversation they're basically particles that are going to sit in the air and you may or may not come across them yeah it's something to fall back on yeah exactly but it's not really about the content it's about the conversation and weaving in between the content you learn a lot about someone just hearing them talk about a subject yeah true, yeah, true. which is why coming back to those interview questions they are more interested in your approach to the question mm-hmm. yeah. and how your brain is reacting to that either little conundrum challenge or totally open question. They they set 
it's half a day the assessment center and you have three interviews and you have two you're you're interviewed in, in a group for you have like a group that you spend the half a day with and you have um two solo interviews one case study uh one group activity and one escape room <laughs> it's a, and they they sit in the room the whole time and watch how you interact and how you work as a team um god it's, it's and i i like one of the questions the case study is basically they write like a scenario so ours was you're hosting a party organizing a party in the national gallery for um like four thousand people and uh like what what do you have to think about what do you have to consider and they ask you questions on this scenario um and they ask you then a math question so you have to like on the spot figure something out um how hard was that that would terrify me it was quite hard but i think i got it wrong <laughs> so the, you don't have to necessarily get it right but you have to kind of like talk through how you approach it but is it is it like tommy has six carrots and he gives one away but obviously brought up to a level of complexity yeah it, yeah or is it like what is 72 Times. divided by nine to the power of four <laughs> no it's more scenario based so in this one I think oh, it that's was... that's interesting yeah because even even if you're relatively good at maths you might not be very good at processing yeah on the spot under pressure verbally communicated problems to solve because that is our job <laughs> yeah that's tricky yeah it was, it was quite a, i think our, the question last question was something like around ticket sales and how many tickets you have to sell to break even taking into account a loss of something else and yeah i think the reason i got it is because i took um you got it right actually no i know i didn't the reason i think they probably overlooked so i got it wrong uh-huh. was because i factored in like a, a risk like a basically a, a cushion fund and i was being quite risk averse and i think they quite like that um okay so in this problem you cushioned your outcome with yeah. factoring in some risk yeah and they thought that that was clever potentially quite um clever thinking because you hadn't been asked to do that yeah so you could judge the situation and it add to it yeah which is a great quality thank you what other what other shit uh so then you have an interview with, with one of the partners um and that was just kind of a, a chit chat um obviously it's more formal than a chit chat but do you prepare a lot uh i mean you've got to know your cv but or like the classic what did you learn from this job yeah that, that is a classic it's funny because i'm so um untrained at that but when i'm asked the question i don't have a particularly targeted response which is a really bad thing you should think about it because when somebody asks you, what did you learn at that place? They're not asking you, what did you learn at that place? They're saying, what did you learn at that place that is relevant to me? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, my dad always used to say to me, I was writing CVs and personal statements and all that boring stuff and prepping for interviews. He'd be like, I don't, as an interviewee, I don't care what you do for you. I care what you bring to my company. And mm. I think that is it's a, so brutal, but we're not taught that enough. Yeah. At, yeah. Because you write like, oh, I want to, and also a lot of people say, I want to get this out of this internship. I want to learn this. I want to learn this, which is all good and well, but... What are they getting? Exactly. What are you bringing to the table and not taking from the table? Mm. Should you write an interview book? So you got into Baringa. Yes. After this sort of... This drilling. Drilling after... Yeah, yeah over the course of, what, three, four? It was f- so it's a five, four hours, five hours, but you do, yeah, group activity. Jesus Christ. Yeah, How many people intense. got it? Do you? I mean, we we don't we don't need numbers, but did you see many of the faces from the introduction? One day? from my group got in. Wow. Um, I think it was it's pretty it was pretty tough. I don't want to take my own horn, but it was pretty tough odds. Doot, doot. <laughs> the tilly horn. <laughs> um, but no, it's pretty tough odds. I think they're they're pretty strict mm. about who they take in, but they're also they're not looking for people who would go and work at the big four. They're looking for different people mm. i think it probably worked in my favor that i got rejected from all the others mm. well it's good you see it that way yeah i guess you end up often feeling that way if you're happy with what you do you tend yeah. not to have regret for the losses right that's a good point i have a friend taken. who's a consultant mm-hmm. very creative sporty good singer um and consultancy is what drew him in after uni and five years down the line, he's now decided to switch over to something else. And he told me something surprising, which is that in job interviews, even though he's got 
wicked credentials. In job interviews, he's heard at least once, if not, I think a couple of times, where people sort of say, well, where, where would we place you? Because you're such generalists, and this is the problem, I guess, mm. with, with like interdisciplinary practices too. Like it's much easier just to say you are really good at this one thing, mm. even if it writes off all your other abilities, just because it it's more approachable for someone if they're going to start paying you a, a salary to do a, a particular job. Um, it's it's hard to cut. It's it's hard to find a a startup or a job in general that is looking for a generalist, mm. right, and willing to pay good money for it. So how do you translate that like expertise that you're talking about, those techniques you learn in consultancy? How, you don't have to answer necessarily, but do you think there's a way of translating them quite obviously uh, in other sort of industry jobs? I don't think there's an easy way. And we are known for consultants like as a profession is known for being kind of jack of all trades, master of none and allergic to making decisions because we never have to make them. We just recommend our clients. So we're not, so with that in mind, like <laughs> on paper, we might not be an ideal hiring candidate, but I think we are almost like the creatives in the corporate world. But weirdly, we have to dumb down and water down our creativeness for a lot of to win a lot of work. And a lot of the our potential clients asks for things like, what is your approach? What's your methodology? What's the process? Where have you done this before? And every project is different. Every client is different, every situation is different, every problem is different. So there is no there is no one size fits all for any any potential project but the clients don't can't see it like that they can't see that they are buying a wealth of experience and people who have who are you know subject matter experts in commodities to to the vaccine rollout <laughs> vaccine rollout to you know ux that is literally i'm just naming a couple of things that the people in our, our company but they are buying in they're getting access to all of that and we will then use our knowledge to solve that problem in a unique way and it doesn't work a lot of the big guys the big four i don't want to slate them off but like it's it's a, it's you know it's the same thing each time they kind of go in they do the same thing and then they leave but i think the way that not just bring i think other other new companies or other other thinkers are treating it is that you need to look at each situation separately because there are so many different forces and drivers that are going to mean that something might not work if I look back on, I think you can pick, I've learned things from each project and I have worked on, like just, I worked at um, a media publishing giant. I worked at a um, district network operator, so like an electricity company. I worked at um, a funeral care company. Nice. I've worked at a building society, a renewable energy company. Like I, I've worked and like the most ridiculous range of projects and you do learn I think you learn about about resilience and how you apply and you bring learnings from each client to the next and cross industry like I said being into being interdisciplinary I think is a massive benefit for for any company because I can bring the learning stuff that I learned when I was working at the electric company and how they run their business and suggest that to my current banking clients that like, have you thought about this these guys are doing something really cool they're being really innovative they're really you know pushing the envelope and they are kind of you know they're they're doing something different and then, then applying that to a completely different industry that's radical so you can be you can bring those different perspectives in and normally typically they, we tend to go into like head of growth roles and something that you have the sort of overview yeah, yeah exactly yeah holistic and I think that is why people buy consultants because you have the view of everything and why architects as well. And it also, like it's, it's about people. Like we know the limits of people in, in the professional context and you know their needs and their wants. And if you're looking at a business and something's going wrong, invariably it's because there is something wrong with the staff, not that they're not doing a good enough job, just that maybe the structure isn't right or something is not being done as well as it could be. Well, that's the way it's always been done. And it is just about, I think, managing those relationships and dealing with those people. And I was surprised before I joined, when I joined, how much of my job is managing. We call it managing stakeholders. Basically just managing the people who are in the company. And that is such a big part of what we do. I remember when I was interning, we were in this kind of 
big bank doing a digital strategy for them and we went into a meeting room and we were presenting to like the, C- the CIO and a couple of others um anyway we left and the partner um we had like a debrief after and the partner asked a question to me he was like what what were their facial expressions when I said this and I thought he was asking me the question to kind of get me involved but he was like no 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 I really want to know what you felt their physical reaction was to something I said and what their emotional reaction was and how you felt like they were feeling because I'm kind of sort of like an impartial third party I could maybe have that perspective but that fed in so much to how to what we did next was how that one person reacted to something that we said and that literally informed where we took the project and where we took the strategy because obviously he's the main buyer he's the most important person in terms of that project and his reaction was paramount to where we're going to go next and I think that is an element as well that is overlooked massively Mm. in every industry because people it's a part of the sale yeah and we all have to sell to some degree yeah Mm. what do consultants tend to do like when they reach a a million dollar question where when they leave okay. consultancy you know are they consultants for life or do they end up sort of starting up their own things becoming in-house professionals for companies that they've worked with as clients or like massive mixture or we've had people do startups or we've um a lot of people go back into industry so we call it industry versus consulting obviously i'm a consultant and then you can jump into industry so that's like me joining a bank hmm. you know like in the sustainable finance team for example um or they do something completely different and sort of like uh, someone I'm I worked with she's left to become work in a care home so like it's you know it completely varies people do whatever but we you, we do pick up a very unique set of skills because we work on a project by project basis we I have no idea what I'm going to be doing in three weeks time when my current project ends and then when you're not on a project you're on what's called the bench yeah and you your job is to win work and you will be responding to these rfps and i've written in the last like two months five rfps helped write them i'm not going to be working on any of them if you win them because either i'm not the right person for the job or i'm going to be fully staffed on something else so it isn't you very rarely see the end-to-end life cycle of like getting the rfp in writing it submitting it doing your rules and then actually getting on the project that's very rare in consultancy because our demand is so up and down and we're all sort of being pulled in 101 different directions which is mm. fun but so as you move up the ranks in consultancy and you become either specialist or just senior do you stick around for the actual project phases more or how do you differentiate between junior and senior you do so i'm specialist now so i'm specialist in climate and financial services that is my so i've specialized quite early um compared to others at my level um for no reason other than i found what i love doing and but then um as we move up the ranks you're the way you're banded, the way your performance is judged, the ratios change. And this is how they do it in Bringo. I don't know how they do it in other consultancies. But we have three categories, so client, commercial, and people. Um, and the uh, percentage split of those change the more senior we get. And the more senior you get, commercial becomes a much larger part of your role. I think it's like 70% when you're partner, which is the top. So that means you have to be focusing 70% of your efforts on winning work. And then I think it's 20% on client, 10% on people. But what does me, the people mean? It's literally just being like a nice person to work with. They put a massive focus on being, we, we call it being kind, being curious, be great at work. That's our kind of ethos. But you have to obviously prove it. So, for example, it's helping upskill a junior resource on something or giving your time to volunteer for our internal initiatives mm. or... Um, kind of just basically going above and beyond and being a nice person to work with. So To build the work culture. Yeah, exactly. And the, that is such an important part of Baringa is how we kind of differentiate ourselves from our competitors. Because we're kind of proudly geeky, but we also are very tight-knit and, and care for each other. And if I'm on a project and I don't really know about something, I know I have 1,300 other people I can call on. And some of those might be experts in a field that I need help on. I can just call them up, even if I've never met them before, and they will put time aside and help me. Mm. That That is how we are run as a business. So you kind of put, we always put Baringa people first. Is that because is nice. the founders or the current like um, senior level 
managers or whatever have had experience in offices that don't work like that, that don't prioritize work-life culture. So they've sort of yeah. chosen this to be their way of changing uh, or reacting, essentially. A lot of the um, our founding partners, I think there was 10 of them, and they all left Accenture, and and they built Beringa as like an antithesis, and they built it in the way that our operating model and the way our kind of profit share is structured and the way the partnership is structured is all built to maintain this culture and to make sure that everyone so for example we only have one profit and loss across the entire business so my success is everyone else uh, everyone else's success whereas Accenture is team by team or like industry by industry so they're competing for work with each other whereas us we will pull in we will kind of do whatever we can to make bring it as a whole successful and like the partnerships the partners i think it's like 200 partners they own the business but they are the there is there's no shareholders um we don't own the business the partners own the business but that is built in a way that it means that they care obviously it's in their financial interest to make sure that everyone is a success not just them as a, it's not a solo sport so it's our theory that if your people are happy <laughs> then they're gonna do the their best work and be there be those best selves and and create a more positive atmosphere for others to be around and be nice to be around for our clients and so that and obviously you have to be good at what you do and you have to be good at your job and if you're not you get you know you're gone mm. we have what's called banding every six months um and you're rated one to five i think by who by a collection of people so um we're literally about to go into our banding now um so i will we have i have an advisor every person has an advisor which is someone who's about three levels more senior than them and they're essentially like a kind of like a work coach ish but they're responsible for not entirely but they are responsible for making sure that you are happy and your best self at work and doing your best job they're like a mentor and they will go and ask for feedback for from people that you've been working with and then also it's i have to then lots of my team for example will be submitting written feedback on me on my performance and I will then write a performance review on myself, and then that will be discussed at various levels of seniority, depending on what team you're in. How detailed is it? Is it, there a, a template? Yeah. That you fill in? So we have, um, it's very simple. We have like a PowerPoint, and it's one slide for people, one slide for commercial, one slide for client. And you just, there's categories in each, and we set objectives for ourselves every six months in those categories, and we assess ourselves. But we have to obviously use facts and figures. So for example, if one of my one of my objectives is to build out my commercial experience and to help win more work, so I will put I was just on pitch as one of those evidences, and I will probably ask one of the partners on the call to provide me feedback on how I performed, mm-hmm. so that I can then use that as evidence as I have been fulfilling my objectives. Voila, voila, give Easy. me one, yeah. Okay, so on this pitch, you joined it a week ago. Yeah. Um, What's been your role for the last week? And then what was your role today in particular? They're submitting their proposal with you as a member of the team. Yes, they've already submitted it, yeah. And that is because, in your estimation? I have the right experience. I'm uh, I'm very lucky in the... I joined a team. I joined our ESG team because we're, we're big names in climate, but ESG is a level above that. So it's the wider environmental factors the wider social factors wider governance factors and that is kind of the way the industry is moving towards and we started our ESG practice last August and I joined I was asked to kind of help out with it as soon as we joined in financial services and I've been on I've been the only one I'm the only one actually at Baringa apart from the partner who's been on every single ESG in financial services project just because of it was luck of the joy I got there at the right time and so I am very well placed for this project because it's an ESG in financial services project and I've been on every project we've had in that experience so it made sense to be on it. Also I'm free from next month mm-hmm. so I, my current project ends there. And so today in the mm. one hour pitch mm. you're kind of a piece of that presentation and you have to pitch in and, and present your um, the, the value that you add as part of the team and yeah. try and echo your personal strengths through what the company has as an identity already, what Beringa <laughs> offers, right? Yeah, yeah, we do. We uh, 
we had we had a dry run a couple of days ago. And we actually got told that we needed to all smile more and be more friendly. You did a dry run. Uh, yeah, we had like three dry runs. This is a big one. They really wanted to win it. Yeah. Hence why I dialed in on my holiday. I wouldn't have dialed in. How many in of you were in the call? There was six, seven from Bringo. Golly. Yeah. And is there a and a round where they can direct questions at members yeah. of, of, of your guys' team? So it started off, we all had to do, we all had to introduce ourselves and do like a bit of a spiel on why we are good for role. Because mm -hmm. they have to comply with lots of regulations. It sound, sounds really boring, but actually it's really interesting because... Who does it sound boring to? Oh, if you um, say the word regulation, people switch off. Huh. Genuinely. But, but I, I get why though, because it's quite like tick, tick boxy. But actually, it's a really, in, it's the way that markets control what happens in the future. And I think it's a really interesting concept because you have governments and regulatory bodies who are creating this essential framework mm. to try and encourage a certain behavior in organizations. But obviously, there's kind of hit and miss, and you've got to iterate and build on it and actually work with the people you're regulating to try and make sure that you're getting the right outcomes. So especially with climate risk, it's quite interesting. Where are you guys involved with that though? We, what in general? You're consulting the regulators? Or, I mean, No, we're helping the organizations meet the regulations, but not just kind of tick the box, actually embed it in the organizations because as the regulation progresses, they have to mature their approach. So to bring, make it more practical, there's a regulation called SS319, which is mm. a, a UK-based regulation, which um, asks financial institutions to embed climate risk into their operating model. And what that basically means is that you have to consider climate at every stage of, for a bank, for example, when you're taking on a new client, you have to have, consider climate risk within that. And then also front offices, when you're having conversations with old clients, you have to help them transition to net zero, that kind of thing. But the regulation is basically assessing how often climate is considered as part of their BAU. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie to you, it's absolutely terrifying. It's my first one. I've never done it, been on a pitch before because at my level, you're not meant to be on pitches. Yeah. Um, it just happened. Well, it, again, lucky because it was a small team and I was very particular about meeting everyone before you go on. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was. How would you rate the experience? You're still in the come down and you're I genuinely am. I was, but... yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, I really, I enjoyed it. It was really cool actually to see, because I've worked with a, a lot of those people before and it was really interesting to see them on like that side of things, trying to like win the work, not actually in the confidence of knowing they've already won it. And also we had a lot of our like big senior partners on there. So we had our head of climate, Orberinger. Really, really nice guy, but it was really interesting to see him in like win mode. Mm. Um, and is there other some surprises, or is it just quite inspiring? I think it was it was the latter. It was it was inspiring because I love Bringer, and it was just really interesting to hear about it from almost someone else's perspective and why we are. Because I know I can I can feel that I know I love working there, but hearing like facts and figures of why we are the best at what we do and what it's like to work with us, I think was nice to hear and. I feel very lucky that I'm part of that company. Do you feel like it's a performance to some degree? I mean, every industry is different. In architecture, for example, a pitch would, would be a performance. You're going to see the partner walk in that morning looking a little sharper uh, with a bit more sleep under their belt. And on, on the call or in the presentation itself, they will be sharp as a knife. And that's why they're representing the company. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of room because it's a creative environment on the whole even though the clients are often um, commercial. There's an understanding that architects can get away with being like a little eccentric and just spontaneous and off the cuff in our presentation. But I can imagine, you know, that's why the sort of, the culture of practicing architecture on the whole doesn't involve um, sort of formalities like suits. It's a much more casual environment where you're sort of, to sound a bit sappy, your sort of, um, your human side is is part of the creative product you're selling. Therefore, mm -hmm. flaws in speech or misuse of words, if, as long as corrected, um, would all be fine. They'd be seen as actually a sign of character and a sign of authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. But I can imagine in other industries, and there there is a lot of value in the art of a, a really well prepared, like perfectly oiled presentation. Yeah, and that's what you guys go for. A combination, because, like I was saying before about how when you're senior or senior, you do this stuff every day. That's what you're judged on. So they have their spiels 
nailed down mm. i had to like create mine um and it probably still needs some work but they know exactly what they're saying and they're like you said sharp as a knife but what really gave me a lot of comfort is that before the on when we did our dry run on wednesday and even this morning just for the pitch the head partner was like guys just be yourself like relax have fun it doesn't matter if we don't win it like it's it's an rfp it's one rfp fine it'll be a great project but like who cares relax enjoy it be yourselves you love what you do again we're lucky that we're i'm getting goosebumps just <laughs> listening to this great leadership great leadership honestly that like trying to chill it is they're, chill they're, group down. yeah and it is because i think they could tell in the dry one we were all really nervous and we were like oh god we're all gonna mess it up and stumble on our words and even though we had everything in front of us to read off but i think because we we are all so passionate about esg and climate change like we are all such tree huggers such eco warriors that you can see when we speak about it we all get a bit excited and so they he was just like let that come through relax and enjoy it have fun use it as an opportunity to really think about you know what you do and how great you guys are and that's what we did and we smashed it out the park well find out next week but fingers crossed yeah well done um i feel like you have you have a pretty good spiel about sustainability and why uh beringa you your team are especially suited to dealing with it, whether it's bringing companies' operations up to scratch in terms of regulations by keeping these things, uh, climate, whatever mm -hmm. the other ESG requirements are. Um, but personally, how do you feel about it? Do you like do you like talking about sustainability? Do you feel like it's a hollow word, like it's a rich word? Do you feel like it's something that your peers are talking about, or is it a purely professional association? I love talking about sustainability <laughs> um i since working in it i have it's kind of like become slightly all-consuming because it's something that i thought about a lot in a personal context and now i think about it every Why? day in a Why do you think context. It in a personal context i have like major concerns for the planet and i've always been slightly terrified of the prospect of where we're going not just from a climate change perspective but from also a societal perspective like you know just look at the news do you remember when that kicked off um i don't actually know when it no i actually don't presumably not going into uni it was some at some point either during or after no i generally don't i know so i was a veg, i was a vegan at uni and that most that was mostly environmental mm. um but i wasn't i tried and any marches i wasn't that vocal but and actually, I think it's probably I'm probably slightly skewed in my thinking because now I'm, you know, I know a lot more about it and I can't I put my I find it hard to look back. I um I was just thinking, can I answer that question myself? Often it's much easier to ask something than actually answer it. That's kind of how it goes. But in this particular case, I can remember. I um thanks for asking. <laughs> I applied to do my master's degree after two years of work, and. I ended up going to a studio or a class or a program for two years that's called Radical Sustainable Architecture. And it's the study of like emergent trends. Mm -hmm. So it's basically trying to like be critical of what architecture, um, both educational and professional looks like now and why that might not be the way that we should do it going forward. The first day is this introduction talk where sustainability is presented as something I'd never heard it being presented as. Um, and the vision around architecture and the role of the architect in particular and why we were relevant to the discussion of uh, a changing climate and a demand to change how we live on the planet because of that changing climate it just completely caught my uh, enthusiasm and inspiration and all the rest of it. It's a really clever technique that the first lecture or the first bit of content that you were fed was what your role is in that argument because I think that is something that um we especially in climate change is what is overlooked because we all know all the facts that like we know we're all doomed but making it not making it personal and not making it clear what what your role is in that or what your role could be in that or you know where you fit means people switch off and they don't they don't engage with it and so I think that is something that we that I think the media and large organizations and governments need to work much harder on is around making it personal, not just about the risks, but about the opportunities and where you can have a, an impact. I think that is the way that we can 
get more people on board and get more people engaged and get the movement going. Yeah, at least with you guys, they've approached you for the specific reason that they know they need to deal with this subject matter, right? Mm. But with a lot of people, it's like banging your head against a brick wall. And how do you make that introduction? There are some people that share this office space whose job it is to um, integrate sustainability and climate change into sort of everyday, for example, stand-up comedy. Um, And they host, they they organize or help organize events that kind of try and uh, plant the seed in sort of, plant the seed for these kinds of discussions and, and broader awareness so cool in everyday circumstances i think that's a job that's amazing it yeah it's interesting because a big part of of making the change is just getting people to be aware of the change yeah which means that a lot of the loud mouths are actually quite useful yeah i think communication as well like i mean it's just people don't because people very rarely i think are only sitting down and discussing and unpicking ideas now but this doesn't this doesn't happen on on the daily basis. People don't actually sit and think and and overanalyze and and go internal. Most people have a lot more to deal with or to think about in their yeah. lives, and that's just fair enough. Yeah, that is why the people that have the time, either in their you know um, personal time or in their professional time, if they're paid to actually sit down and think about um, in a case by case manner. Like what could be improved here? What can be worked on? It's scary. It's an Im- it's an immense privilege, but it's also like a huge responsibility. Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. Spider Man. Um, it's also really scary. So it's like if, when you start unpicking it, and the other day I was chatting to my housemate, um, and she was talking about I can't remember what we're talking about, but we were talking about climate change, and and I explained it. I was trying to be trying to be as nice as uh, and as understanding as possible, but. I, d- I tried to explain back to her that I know that she wants like three kids when she's older um, and she'll make the most amazing mum. What I was trying to explain is that by the time that your kids are even teenagers, what the world might look like for them at that point if we don't radically change our what we're doing now. And it was a scary conversation to have and it was a scary conversation. I think it was scary things for her to hear because, you know, there's going to be flooding, mass climate migration. We're not going to have you know, the same crops that we have now, food scarcity is going to be a much larger thing. We're going to have flooding. We're going to have heat waves, small storms like the one we had last week. Like it's going to be not a very nice place to live if we carry on this trajectory. And I think making it real and putting it in that context <clears throat> is quite a terrifying thing to be confronted with. But it's also what we all need to realize. That's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, but like what you're saying about this opening talk, it's clever how they sort of made it personal. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure if it connected with everyone in the way it did with me, but obviously it struck a chord. Yeah. Um, but it, in that in that vein, you know, what is your what is your role on the, on you know with regard to this? How have you appropriated your concerns and turned them into, you know, a daily kind of pursuit? professionally or personally so my role if at all by the way because you can have a great care for like the future of the planet but currently just be preoccupied with trying to get by make a living give yourself um the opportunity to be able to act further down the road yeah i think that's probably a combination you asked me what my role is or are you asking me more general yeah or where you sort of um appropriate the subject matter and make it personal to your life well it's my it's my day job so my day job is to help financial institutions minimize their impact and have a positive impact on the planet and society. And the reason I like doing it for financial services is because that's where the money is, that's where the power is. And I think that is where we have the most potential to tip the scales. And that is the, the you know, investment is going to be the, the driving force for us to get to net zero. That's a fact. That's why COP26 had a whole day dedicated to it. Like it's governments and regulators can only do so much consumers can only do so much people go where the money is okay but how do you how do you bring it into your personal life because you've combined your skill your professional um sort of ambitions with a subject matter that is not only very interesting to you personally not only do you believe in it with all your heart obviously but it's also a hit topic it's what everybody Mm. is aware of trying to concern themselves with whether superficially or not therefore you've sort of hit a trend right the tragedy is it's not just a trend Mm. and it's not going to go away it's only going to get worse and worse and worse so you've you've basically given yourself all the all the chances to have a very long and successful 
career with this subject matter, but it is external from how you live your everyday life. So how do, how do you take your concerns and, you know, apply them to your personal life and try and influence the, the people around you, try and be the kind of insidious consultant among your friend group? I, I do all the classics, like I'm a vegetarian, I recycle, I try not to buy fast fashion, I offset, I, you know, have a reason. Do you do it consciously? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, also because and does I, it frustrate you when other people don't and you know they could? Like uh, friends it or family? It did, or... and I had to kind of get off my soapbox a bit because um, I was p- pulled up on it. <laughs> um, but I think also my role is education and I'm happy. I'm known for every time I get drunk, I will find the one person at the party who wants to talk about climate change with me and I will talk about it all evening. It, it happens every time. And I think that I, but I'm totally happy being that person. Like I'm totally happy having that stereotype put on me. So lots more questions, but it's Friday night. Yeah. It's, Thanks yeah. for coming on Otley Mould, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me.